Hey, this is your host Shane with a super exciting episode of Radical Rocks. Rusty Gold from the Tucson Mountains, King Charles Crown, Cave Onyx, uh, Polly, Jasper, all kinds of stuff. On the first part of the journey, I was looking at Radical Rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand, hills, and rings. The first thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock of the Felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, that's right radical rocks are everywhere and today man have we got a jam-packed show for you um rusty gold that is from the tucson mountains of arizona in uh, the united states of course uh king charles being uh coronated the crown and the jewels associated with that is amazing. Amazing. Um, we've got a brochen, brochentite mineral to talk about. We have polychrome jasper, cave onyx, five extinct uh, creatures, the god of death, the Washington uh, dino, um, and so much more. So let's get right into it because, wow, we have a lot to cover. Thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. You can get this podcast on any app. Um, I, as you know, I produce it through Spotify now, but uh, you can get it anywhere you want. And um, you can join us on MeWe. We have a group there called Radical Rocks. You can look us up at uh, Radical Rocks or Radical Rocks USA. We're on several different uh, social media. We got a Radical Rocks videos on YouTube as well. And whatever you, however you join up, even though it's free, it helps support the channel. So we appreciate it. If you got any show ideas, you can email me at RadicalRocksUSA at gmail.com. Uh, so there you go. Let's get into it. Man, I have so much stuff. It's amazing. Bulgaria Blue Diamond expected to headline Geneva Luxury Week. Uh, this is going to be at Sotheby's and expected to have a price tag of $25 million. Or if you're in Australian uh, dollars, it would be $37.6 million. Largest diamond ever set in a Bulgarian piece is considered the most um, valuable gemstone ever sold by this gemstone distributor. So check that out. Ten historic gold mining towns to visit in Nevada. Yeah, we got gold mining stories. I've got another story at the very end if you hold out from Cole Younger, if you want to hear one of his stories. Again, this is the 10 historic mining towns to visit in Nevada. Go to thetravel.com and you can check that out. Uh, some of these places in Nevada is Virginia City. I have been there. Recommend that that is a very touristy place. Uh, this is where the Comstock 
probably the world's biggest silver mine, or at least at that time, the biggest silver mine, helped enrich America quite a bit. Um, lots of historical buildings there, places to visit and things to do. You can look that up again at thetravel.com. And uh, Tonopah, great place, turquoise area. They've got a hotel there called the Clown Motel. So lots of hokey things to do if you want to go there. Uh, Tonopah is located there. We're going to talk probably a little bit more about some of these areas. We have talked about them in the past. Austin, this is a small town in central Nevada. The Reese River Silver Mine was quite popular there. Produced over $20 million worth of silver. Of course, that's probably when silver was a dollar an ounce. Now it's uh, selling for quite a bit more. In fact, if you have silver dollars, they're selling for about 30 times face value, 32 times face value if they're in decent condition. We like to call this constitutional silver. But uh, yeah, that was a big boom town for silver. And then the Nelson Gold Mines, you can check that out. Eureka, Eureka is another area in Nevada. You thought that was in California? Nope, there's a Eureka in Nevada as well. Very historical, uh, key source of uh, mining in the area. All the way from the 1800s, the early to late 1800s, all the way through the 1900s. Silver production was the main... Uh, Main Metal Belmont. This is a historic mining town located in Nye County, Nevada. Belmont was founded in 1869 after a silver deposit was found. Produced silver, gold, lead, copper. Many, many mines in the area. The most prominent of these mines was the Monitor Belmont and the Belmont Mine and the Combination Mine. The Belmont Mine alone produced over $15 million in silver between 1865 and 1880. Remember, again, this is when silver was, you know, probably a dollar an ounce. A lot of the historical buildings are still standing today. Story County, Nevada, has a historical mining community called Gold Hill. We've talked about that. In 1859, the town was established. This uh, was a gold area, obviously. Gold Hill was home to many businesses and services, it's a great area to visit. Looks like they even have railroad track there and some old buildings and stuff that you can go check out. There's tours, landmarks. Goldfield, another huge gold mining area with some of the old buildings and stuff still standing. Some tourist place there to see. Um, yeah, thousands of prospectors were there back in 1902 and prior to that. Primarily focused on gold, silver, and then copper. One of the mines, some of the mines in the area was the Mohawk Combination and Florence Mines. Still re remains, or retains rather, much of its historic charm. Rhyolite, another gold area, one of the best gold towns. Uh, it has been noted as one of the best gold uh, ghost towns that you can go visit. Uh, Rhyolite has a long history, has several mines, including the Montgomery Shoshone Mine, largest producer of gold in the area. Very, uh, still somewhat a mining community even to this day. Jarbridge, another small incorporated community in the northeast part of Elko. Um, lots of gold there in the early 1900s. Jarbridge was 
has rich mining history, once was a bustling town, had a number of gold, silver, copper, and lead mines in the area. The largest mine in the region, however, was the Gold Coin Mine. It ran from 1907 until 1942, producing gold, silver, more than $5 million worth. Unionville, the last on this list. Historic ghost town in Pershing County, Nevada, in the United States, found in the early 1860s during the Silver Rush and known for its mining activities. Unionville had significant impact on the state's mining history, and uh yeah go check that out if you want at uh travel thetravel.com and find out about those 10 cool gold mining areas boy i've got so much stuff to tell you about today um michigan five gemstones that you can find in michigan go to wkfr.com and uh look up the five gemstones that you can find in the state of Michigan by Chelsea Rose. She tells us about the Isle Royal uh, Greenstone. This is the Michigan State uh, gemstone. Sometimes it's very close to the uh, Podowski stone that we've talked about, kind of a turtle shell pattern. It can be polished in, and found in green and blue colors. They're kind of rare, but uh, they can be found. They have a link here for instructional video on um, how to find them right here on the website. Lake Superior agates, these can, be sh these can be found on the shores of Lake Superior. If you look up euperites, uh, my friend uh, Eric Rentamaki does tours on Lake Superior. He can help you find these stones that glow in the dark, euperites, and also some of these Lake Superior agates, so contact him. Leland Blues is a blue slagstone. Leland Blue is actually man-made, but uh, these can be found. There's a link here how to find them. The hematite is quite beautiful, um, and you can find uh, pieces that have, these are iron-rich, and some have little flecks of mica that gives it a silvery shimmer. Hematite comes in a variety of colors. Um, but you can also find links to these here as well. Again, this is wkfr.com, and just look up the gemstones that you could five gemstones that you can mine or find in the state of Michigan, and you will see that Thompsonite is another one. This one is pretty cool, very rare. Um, it can be pink to brown, white, occasionally with a hue of of green found only along Lake Superior shore and this one I've never heard about before they've got a sample of it here it uh, it has kind of a uh, I'll call it a starburst pattern where it starts off kind of a white gray and then kind of goes to an orangish pink with maybe some green hues around the edge um, very unique and uh, something to be treasured if you were fortunate enough to find it. So check that out if that's something you're interested in. A four-legged land-hunting whale nicknamed the God of Death. This creature used to inhabit the earth, according to the story by Ryan McLaughlin. And this can be found at msn.com under that title. And they have some bone fragments here of this creature. It looks more like a crocodile um, kind of face 
with uh, kind of like a hippopotamus feet um, with kind of paddly paddle type hands. And this creature apparently, according to their studies, would uh, devour many, many creatures. It, uh, they don't know a ton about it. It was found in Egypt. They feel that uh, once Egypt was underwater and this creature lived there. And um, you can read all about that if you want to find out more about this very interesting creature. Five extinct sea creatures that uh, scientists swore these were ancient creatures of the past. At a-z-animals.com, you can read about these five extinct sea creatures later found alive by Christine Harrington. Um, yeah, you can look that up. Quite a few. One of them looks like a crinoid. They call it a protolophilia. And uh, this creature, they thought, uh, had been extinct millions of years ago. It's kind of a carnivorous coral-type plant. Kind of a, something they would say is a, a bit of a... Uh, a metamorphic type creature. It says it's a small organism which lives in colonies less than 0.1 millimeter in size. It attaches to a solid object as a pulpa and then branches off and changes into a little jellyfish. So very interesting. Um, they found them at the coast of Costa Rica and they feel that it went extinct millions of years ago. The goblin shark, another one that uh, they thought was extinct millions of years ago. Sure enough, there it is. Um, this is a, a kind of a bizarre looking creature with a number of staggering long pointed teeth and a snout. They are thriving today and found around continental edges toward the ocean's bottom. These type of sharks are creeper fish and it's possible that they once shared the earth with dinosaurs, according to this. Neptune's cup is a sponge uh, that they thought was extinct, and it was discovered in the 1800s that it was not, so kind of an older one. Here's one that, uh, more recent, the, and I might be pronouncing this wrong as I do so often, is the Colisenith, Colisenith. And this is a very ancient fish with a big fat tail. Uh, got two, four, six, seven, eight, almost nine, ten, ten little fin sections, um, more or less. And this fish they thought was extinct for a long, long time. Uh, turned up just in um, just in the last uh, eighty years or so, and. They are beautiful, very associated with deep ocean volcanic regions that uh, can be found all over the earth. So this happens all the time. There's even some more modern ones that we've talked about that have only been discovered to be not extinct in the last few hundred years. How would you like to go on a field trip? Um, we've talked about the Orange Belt Mineralogical Society. You can look this up if you want to go. If you want to go into the uh, California deserts in Southern California and dig up some of this cave onyx, really cool stuff, Coahif cave onyx, there's an opportunity to go on this trip on May the 20th. Go to the website I will give to you now, M-A-I-L-C-H-I dot M-P, 
and just look up Coweef Field Trip. It's K-O-K-O-W-E-E-F Field Trip, explanation point, Saturday, comma, May 20, 2023, through the Orange Belt Mineralogical Society. And they have the actual um, web page right here at mailchi.mp. And uh, check it out. They have a survey there that you would fill out and a form that you would fill out. Um, it's basically a MailChimp um, page if you want to check that out. Go do it. That's a cool trip. Those are great people. Many of them there are my friends that I've known for, gosh, almost 20 years. Some of them almost 20 years. All right. I think we need to get into a little bit about King Charles and the crown. Let's do it. And then we'll get into some more minerals and some lapidary and maybe a little uh, gold miner story. So if you go to King Charles Third, King Charles III's coronation crown has 444 gemstones. How much is it worth? Jacob Raleigh and Nina Dalton tell us about this at the dailyrecord.co.uk. So these are our friends in England. They've got lots of videos. Um, the coronation has begun. Uh, he's been officially crowned alongside his wife, Queen Camilla, or Camilla. I'm not a. I don't follow this. My wife does. She'd probably be correcting me. The 74-year-old king is wearing St. Edward's crown as part of the service conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, this will be the first time, first and only time, that Charles 74 will wear the 17th century crown, which was last worn by Queen Elizabeth II during her coronation. So this is a privilege for him to be able to wear this. Um, white, beautiful, purple velvet looks like, with many, many jewels, much, much gold. As the royal tradition, Charles will be officially crowned as king with St. Edward's crown during the coronation. It was recently removed from the Tower of London to be resized for the king ahead of the monumental service. Charles will then switch to the lighter imperial state crown at the end of the ceremony to leave um, uh, Abbey as it is the custom. So what is the value? It says here um, in their uh, money, pounds I guess, it's got kind of an L, 3 billion to 5 billion. So I don't know what that is in U.S. currency, but uh, it sounds like it's a lot. <laughs> There's uh, It's made of solid gold, velvet cap, an ermine band weighs nearly five pounds. It has 444 gemstones, including rubies, sapphires, garnets, and tourmalines. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. The history is St. Edward's crown was made for King Charles II in 1661 as a replacement for the medieval crown that had been melted down in 1649. The original crown was thought to date back to the 11th century royal saint, Edward the Confessor. St. Edward's crown is 
used only during coronation ceremonies and was worn by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at her coronation in 1953. The late monarchy revealed in 2018 that she also had the crown resized to fit her head. What crown will Camilla, oh, Camille, Camilla wear during the king's coronation? Uh, Camille will be crowned with Queen Mary's crown, which has been altered to include some of the late queen's jewels, such as the Cullion Third, Fourth, and Fifth diamonds, which were part of Queen Elizabeth's second, Queen Elizabeth II's personal jewelry collection for many years. Pretty incredible. Um, our friends at Rock and Jim tell us more about King Charles' coronation jewels. There's quite an article there. You can look that up. Just go to rock, the letter N, jim.com. Look up King Charles's coronation jewels. And you're going to find out there the size of this zeppelin, um, the stones, um, old uh, uh, the, the scone and the sandstone story, um, the stone of uh, destiny, the Stone of Scone, originally known as it was originally known, uh, was used in the coronation of Scottish monarchs until seized in 1296 from Scone Abbey during the English invasion led by Edward II. Seems like they need to give that back to Scotland. Um, maybe they'll pay him reparations, who knows. Um, but anyway, on more serious note, King uh, the King of Britain uh, took it, and they have had it. It says, uh, until the British government returned it three dec decades ago. Oh, so it was returned to Scotland for safekeeping when not in use for coronations. So I don't know if they still use it or not, but uh, said it was returned in 2010. So that's interesting. St. Edward's Crown talks about this in more detail if you want to find out about that. Um, it said that uh, it, the, the crown before weighed 7.6 pounds. Um, it had 168 pearls, 58 rubies, 28 diamonds, 19 sapphires, 2 emeralds, was broken up by the Order of, crown Cromwell, of Olive Cromwell during the English Civil War. On May 20, 23rd, Charles III joined six monarchs since 1661 who was crowned with St. Edward's crown, including James II, William III, George VI, and his mother Elizabeth II, Queen Elizabeth II. The archbishop will place St. Edward's crown on his head during this, uh, this uh, procession, and uh, it is... Uh, he will be presented with symbolic items of his role, his sovereign scepter of justice and mercy, the royal orb, religious and moral authority. So uh, basically, it's kind of being crowned as God on earth there. <laughs> and uh, this piece with 444 precious and semi-precious stones, including four, excuse me, 345 rose-cut aquamarines, 37 white topaz, 27 tourmalines, 12 rubies, 7 amethysts, 6 sapphires, 2 jeruns, 1 garnet, 1 spinel, 1 uh, carbuncle, 
Um, Jeruns and Carbuncle are Persian um, gold. Jar Jargons are Zircons. Okay, so weird words for those. And uh, legend describes that uh, the deep red gemstones that are in this are cut in such a way that uh, it has magical properties, including the ability to light up dark intentions. <laughs> so there's some, uh, some folklore here with this. The Imperial State Crown. Toward the end of the coronation ceremony, St. Edward's crown will be replaced with the Imperial State Crown set with a 317-carat diamond known as the Kulian II Second Star of Africa that was cut from one of the largest diamonds ever found and presented to um, King Edward VII for his 66th birthday by former British Crown Colony of Transylvania. Trans now South Africa. So a lot of these gems are similar because some of them came from the same area. There's all kinds of history on this if you want to read more. Um, the article is taken from a story um, accredited by L.A. Sokowowski. So you can check that out. I don't think I have any more on King Charles. Here's an interesting one. The oldest chili pepper was found in Colorado, and it's a fossil. They say it's millions and millions of years old. You can look this up if you want at sunset.com. And this was found in Colorado in the United States of America. They've got a picture of this uh, so-called chili pepper here. They said that sometimes these can be found in the Green River Formation located northwestern Colorado and southwestern Wyoming. And they have a picture of it here, and sure enough, it uh, does look kind of like a small pepper. Chunks of Mars rocks could be on their way to Earth. According to interesting, or, uh, yeah, interestingengineering.com, um, Kavitia Verma tells us about it. According to scientists... Uh, it's a lot easier for stones from Mars to have been uh, broke loose from the planet and will impact um, the Earth. And they go and talk about some of these. I did find another article on one that landed just recently, uh, weighing about 10 pounds. So we'll see when they bring these Mars uh, rocks back from uh, the Mars rover and all of that how well they really match these meteorites and if they do in fact come from Mars. Okay, what else? Man, I have so much to tell you about. We still have Jasper, we still have the mineral uh, bron bronchitite, and uh, we've got the uh, polychrome Jasper and other stuff. So let's talk about some mining tales. Mining tales are found at Tucson.com. Mining tales, um, the Tucson Mountains mined since the Ho Hokum days. And William Escarza tells us about this. Quite a few stories here if you want to read them in detail. But during the 19th and 20th century, and even as early as 1692, 
these areas were mined by the Spanish. Prior to that was this tribe, the Ho-Ho-Kem tribe, H-O-H-O-K-A-M, up to a thousand years ago. And they were mining for gold and silver. And this was near the San Saver Mission, which was founded in uh, 1692. A lot of activities happened in southern Arizona. There were stagecoaches that were rolling through uh, Tucson and near the Dragon Sage uh, Stage Stop in the Dragon Mountains. The Pantos Stage Stop near the uh, Sinirga Creek Railroad Bridge near the Rikon Mountains and the Pointer Mountain Stage Stop in the northern uh, Tucson Mountains. So all these areas were bustling. They've got some early pictures here of the late 1800s. These miners in the area at this encampment at the uh, Canada del Oro circa late 1800s according to the uh, Arizona Geological, Geological Survey. They have some pictures of this as well. Prospectors were digging up these areas. It was known as the Canyon of Gold. Um, some of this gold, we're going to find out, was kind of rusty colored. A major gold rush followed to capitalize on free-flowing gold that was found embedded in the quartz down the slopes of Mount Limon toward the town of Oracle. The area's Bernie mines were named after Bob Bernie, who owned a 60-ton selective flotation mill near Oracle that processed local ores, including those from the Child's uh, Adwinkle Mine at Copper Creek in the Santa Teresa Mountains. Now, these are a meta-sediment-type uh, breakas that include gold, lead, zinc, silver, and there's also areas of oxide copper mineralization and this has been studied and found um, to have about half an ounce to an ounce per ton of, uh, of uh, low-grade silver mineralization. Doesn't seem that great to me, but uh, this geology also says that these Tucson mountains were volcanic, and actually a collapsed volcanic vo- volcano, last active um, long, long ago, So this formed uh, stocks, plugs, and dikes, which resulted uh, also these igneous intrusions. So this molta magma was there, and the quartz um, would come up through these cracks and areas, bringing gold, silver, and other things. Also a lot of basalt and rhyolite in this area, proving that it is a very volcanic area at one time. There is the old Yuma mine in the north, in the north rather, the gold and mile wide mines in the central portion of this uh, area, and um, other mines, the Michigan mine located at the southwest flanks of the Tucan, Tucan Mountains, Tucson Mountains, Tucan, that's a bird, um, also and Sam Hughes and christened the Sam Hughes gold mine was known among the Mexicans as the Mine of the Eagle. Uh, there was a five-mile pipeline 
near Santa Cruz River, and placer, placer gold was mined here. Also, when they would crush the the ores in the arasters, they could use this water to pan through and get that gold. But they also ground it up and used amalgma. Amalga, amalgam is mercury. They would use mercury to trap the gold and then uh, get that out. Now, some of the gold that they found is called rusty gold. This gold has a coating of iron oxide. This rusty gold is difficult to recover with amalgamation, so the, the, um, the mercury wouldn't want to stick to it. So there was a high zinc content. It made it kind of challenging and uh, less profitable for miners. In 1914, a renowned geologist, Iron Joralimon, invested in the property and developed 10 million tons of copper ore and um, was able to um, make some money through this. He had a smelter in 1950 where tailings were mined all the way through the 1980s and uh, gold and minerals were extracted from this. Um, they used a lot of explosives and copper leaching and other things to try and get the copper and silver and gold out of this area. Mudslides uh, happened, other things happened and uh, stopped production throughout the years, of course the war, things like that. But between 1906 and 1959, about 400, excuse me, 45,000 pounds of copper were produced. The nearby mile-wide mine was christened by the width of the entire claim, known as the King Canyon Mine, produced 34,000 tons of copper with gold, lead, uh, molybdenum, and zinc during both world wars. So that I guess they were allowed to produce through this time. Lava flows uh, can be found throughout this area. It's part of the, the, uh, the geology of that area. The old Yuma mine is the largest metal producer in the Amol district with record figures of silver, lead, copper, molybdenum, along with gold and vandium. It was located in 1885, um, the old Yuma mine, and the old Comet Lode mine claims uh, were quite profitable during World War One, and uh, even a Colonel uh, Randolph produced some vandium in this area. Um, they used a gravity jig mill. They used concentrated wolfenite and vandium. Produced over thirty tons uh, of copper at that time. Limited production continued to under the Yuma Mining Company from 1930 to 1954. Also, placer deposits with significant gold values. Other leaching, crushing techniques were used. Some of the finest examples of wolfenite and vandenite are found from this area that are uh, the finest in the world. Industrial metals um, are there, but uh, residential development in the area and, and environmental concerns have kind of uh, ended the production in this area, with the exception of the Portland Cement Company at Twin Peaks. So, uh, yeah, it looks like the area is kind of dead. They've got some videos and things like that here. Very rich mining specimen. 
They have uh, some specimens. If you can find vandenite or uh, wolfenite specimens from this area, you have uh, you have some fine specimens. All right, we got some minerals, and then we'll get into some more rocks. Let me get a swig of my coffee. Okay, bronc or bro chin chitite brochintite it's b r o c h a n t i t e so this uh brochintite is a beautiful green stone um usually a something for a mineral collector but it does have some pretty cool formations that uh fan out and um could be displayed in other minerals so we'll talk about that uh, the gene uh, bab babstistes mine um, and other mines anglos consanchos mine uh, and other mines uh, in greece in uh, east attica some spectacular specimens that look like uh, a cheerleader's pom-pom of iridescent greens. Uh, wow, real pretty. Some other beautiful uh, cubicle, cubicle, cubicle uh, formations. Some with some uh, sharp, like a knife tip uh, terminations can be found at uh, in Chile. Also, and this is at mindat.org. Just look up uh, Bronk Chin Tite and you will see it. B R O C H A N T I T E. And uh, this mineral was named to honor a French geologist who uh, his last name was Bronk Chin de Villiers, which I'm probably slaughtering that. But uh, he was able to find this. It can pseudomorph as malachite, azurite, langite, uh, chrysocolla, and uh, even angular varieties can be confused with dops, uh, dopstase, which is a beautiful green color. So there's a lot of history on this. Let's see here. The mineral uh, bronchentite at minerals.net. You can look at it also at uh, mindat.org. You will get some information here on it. It always occurs in intensely deep green colors. It is almost exclusively in grips, groups of small radiating needles, often found together with similar mineral kinotrichite, which has a deep blue color combination of light green brochantite and bright blue kinotrichite can create beautiful and contrasting specimens when found together. Um, more about this, the hardness is about 3.5 to 4, shows up in pale green to bright green, very dark, dark green, prismatic Crystals um, are rare, but very collectible. Um, grainy twin, tiny twin crystals. Pseudomorph again with azurite, malachite, and other gemstone, other types, 
of minerals. It is in the group of sulfites, a hydrous sulfite. It can be found all over the world. Some of the noteworthy locations for fine specimens would be in Africa, uh, the Congo, Zaire, um, Nambia, to name a few. Morocco, of course, some beautiful. Queensland, Australia, um, Chile, um, Mexico, different areas of Milpas Mines and Sonora, uh, also in Colorado, Bisbee, Arizona, Coachive County, um, Utah, and even some areas in California, in Inyo, California, and other areas. Go to MindDat. Dot org or minerals.net if you want to look up some of these locations. Basically, this mineral can be found all over the world. When I look at mindat.com, I can see that it is spat, uh, spotted locations can be found all over the world. Now, polychrome jasper. Finally, maybe I can speak without slaughtering the words. Polychrome Jasper, uh, look this up, trying to look for new lapidary materials that might interest you. What is it? Well, it's kind of a trade name, I think, of Jasper that comes out of Madagascar. Um, when I look at um, gemstones and Jasper that I'm familiar with, it kind of looks like it could be, you know, the blue horse or... You know, Awi Jasper or some of those type of Jaspers. It's a multicolored Jasper is basically what it is and what it means. Some people call it Desert Jasper. If you go to MadagascarMinerals.com, not a sponsor of the show. Nobody's sponsoring the show right now except uh, Spotify. But uh, you can see a little bit about this uh, type of Jasper. And uh, it can be found in the desert. And it is quite beautiful, many colors, including red, pink, brown, purple, black, light blue, gray, and other colors and patterns and swirls. Sometimes you can get really fortunate and find a design or a pattern that looks like mountains or landscape or something like that. So uh, beautiful. Of course, this is quite easy to work with. If you have a diamond saw, you can buy some slabs on eBay or whatnot. Um, very basic cutting and grinding techniques are used. Draw a picture or scratch a uh, shape that you want to cut. Use a trim saw, trim off the main pieces. Use about a 100 grit wheel to uh, shape it. Start to uh, glue it to a dop stick. Start shaping it and forming it. Once you get the basic uh, shape, just uh, progress down in the different grits that you use from uh, 100 to 250 to the 400s to the 600s. If you only have 600, it will take a polish at that point um, with uh, tin oxide or iron oxide. If you have a wheel where you can go into the thousands, you will get a glass-like shine out of this, a mirror-like finish out of this gemstone assuming you have a good uh, piece to work with. So that is your polychrome jasper, also known as desert gra uh, jasper or multicolored jasper. In conclusion, I have one more story to tell you from my friend uh, Cole Younger, 
I like his stories. He would post them sometimes on Facebook. You can look them up on Facebook if you want. Cole Younger, uh, he's a great guy. He might lead a trip. I don't know. He's so busy doing real gold mining prospecting. He might not do that anymore. He sells stuff on eBay, some wonderful turquoise and all kinds of minerals and memorabilia if you want to talk to him. Um, he's a good friend of mine. I trust him. And uh, so let's tell this story from an, a, a real prospector's point of view and the way, just kind of the way we, the slang and talk that we use. So here it is. The dirt road lurking in front of my home is a dirt road. Not just your ordinary dirt road, but an ominous presence constantly luring me to possible treasures that a dirt road leads to, or perhaps a misadventure and death. One direction leads to the Grand Canyon and once promising gold mining towns. On the opposite side of the road are remnants of old ancient Joshua tree that a roadrunner is calling his home. I sit out just before dawn and attempt to sequester the call of the dirt road, now covered with raindrops as it beckons with the monsoon rains and lightning parting the clouds. I hear the roadrunner calling, as he does most mornings, sounding like a dog whimpering. A very sad call, but he also has a ratcheting call similar to ravens, and it seems to use whatever he uses this whenever he's excited. Beyond him, five miles away, lies a black mountains still hoarding their treasures. These treasures are beyond that dirt road that leads you into the mountains. They are the remnants of a trail at the end of that road through the remnants of history that lead you to a solemn moment when you realize that you're standing on the treasure. And that is all around you. You can smell the creosote. You can smell the wet earth. Just breathe it in as you seek the end of the trail and make that trail a little longer than you found it. Happy trails. Now, I just want to add to this story. If you've ever spent any time in the desert, it can be very inhospitable. It can be very painful. It can you can get sunburned, cracked lips. You can get look choya cactus stuck in you and that's hell if you've ever gotten that. You got to cut it out with a knife. You face rattlesnakes, flat tires, exhaustion it gets so hot so quick and the monsoon rains can wash you down a river and kill you in an instant in fact every year people die in these monsoons in california in the midwest or in the southwest excuse me southwest deserts but there's those times in the springtime when you see the flowers or those times when the little rain comes down and you smell that smell that just is so refreshing to the soul that you breathe it in. And when you've been there and you've done that, you will know what this means at a higher level than you do for me just telling you the story. So guys, I want to thank you for tuning in. 
Until next time, remember rock hounds don't die, they petrify.